how do we know if art is great? Surely not all art is created equal, but is there some objective standard of quality? And if not, how can we determine what exactly makes something the best? Welcome to the Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with Jared Sharin. He helped run the Pornikitch blog for over a decade, co-founded the Jurassic London Publishing Company, and has edited some truly excellent anthologies. His most recent work is the Best of British Fantasy Anthology series. Jared and I discuss the art of reviewing, publishing misconceptions, and what exactly being an anthology editor means. Let's see what he had to say. Jared Sharin, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm glad you were willing to do this. I'm a, a longtime reader of the site, so I'm really glad to be involved in it. So thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is a speculative fiction podcast based on a speculative fiction site, and you're expecting a bunch of relevant interview questions. But I do have to ask, I came across an interview you did where you admitted to being a trained barbecue judge from Kansas City. How exactly did that happen? Really, it just happens from being born in Kansas City. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, it's a population of, you know, I think 500,000, excluding the metro area. And um, of that, you know, a quarter of a million cook barbecue and the other quarter of a million judge barbecue. And, you know, we, we trade roles every couple of years. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I forgot how it happened. I think my other members of my family did it and said I should, but you know, there's a whole, um, barbecue fandom puts speculative fiction fandom to shame. Um, and there is a, you know, there's a traveling competitive barbecue circuit. There's a, you know, tens of thousands of incredibly passionate people. And you train as a judge so you can go participate in these competitions and tell people how great their barbecue is. It's very fun. The training, you know, lasts a couple of days. And basically they feed you bad barbecue and then tell you why that barbecue is bad, which is <laughs> definitely one of the weirdest experiences of my life. You just sit there all day eating terrible food. And then they're like, well, that is really bad because, you know, it was left on the grill too long or th that sort of thing. Um, but it's it's a blast. Um, and, you know, it's I'd, I'd like to make some sort of passionate speech about how it's me giving back to the community, but it's not. I just really like barbecue and eating is fun. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to go wrong with either of those things. Uh, I'm a barbecue fan myself. Uh, over in the East Coast, we don't have quite the reputation for good barbecue as Kansas City, but I did eat at Jack Stack last time I was there, so I enjoyed that. Oh, amazing. Oh, excellent. No, that's, that is a, a really good one. I, I have to say it's the lamb ribs there. I think they're one of the few places in Kansas City that experiment by doing something with lamb, and they're absolutely delicious. Um, but yes, no, sorry, I could spend about three hours going through like the pros and cons of every barbecue place in Kansas City, but we can save that for later. <laughs> maybe next time, maybe next time. Uh, well, I guess talking about then the lesser fandom, uh, do you remember <laughs> what started you on the path to becoming a speculative fiction fan? I mean, aren't, aren't we all sort of born speculative fiction fans? <laughs> but it's sort of like, um, here's another weird parallel, but it, it's a bit like soccer in the US. You know, okay. everyone plays soccer as a kid. Like it's, you know, it's a 100% it's a sort of universal sport. But 
by the time you hit high school, a lot of people have dropped out to play football or baseball or basketball instead. And by the time you get to, you know, university or adulthood, that's even even lower, which is why you have a massive country that loves sports and doesn't field soccer teams quite up to our potential. Um, it sort of feels that fantasy is a bit of the same thing. Like okay. most of kids' fiction is fantasy. And certainly most of middle grade fiction and most of what is now young adult fiction. I mean, it's just masses of fantasy or science fiction inflected work. But there's, um, I think people choose to leave it more than they they choose to stay. And I always find that very sad that there's some sort of Narnia-like awakening moment where people decide they're just they're not going to go look for fantasy books anymore and they're going to try and move on to something else. And it's great to read broadly and try absolutely everything, but it's when people lose whatever that imagination or innocence is that that makes them fantasy readers that makes me very sad. But yes, I am. this is a strange hill that I will build and die on, but I think we are all fantasy readers and just <laughs> some people choose to move away from it. Yeah, uh, that that pretty much describes my experience, both from the sports and from the fantasy angle. Uh, <laughs> and then it was years later uh, that I finally came back to fantasy. I think most of, for me, like American middle school and high school, so like a solid eight to 10 years there, I wasn't really reading anything at all. And then I finally came back to fantasy. That's really interesting. What what brought you back to, was it fantasy that brought you back to reading? Uh Yes, mostly. I, I was reading like a couple odd science fiction books here and there, like maybe two or three a year, which is a respectable amount of reading per year. But now I'm doing, you know, 30, 40 times that. And I think it was probably I was just searching online for like good fantasy books and I found the uh, fantasy subreddit online. And so then I was just going through and my to be read list was growing out of control. And I finally just picked a book. And from there, I was reading nonstop. That's that's amazing. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It, it's been a couple of years now, but it's been a great couple of years. I mean, the the sub is a, a constant danger for piles of books. Um, you know, it's not just one person that's reading sixty or seventy books a year. It's it's a half million, and all of them are frantically pouring onto the sub and giving recommendations every day. I mean, I think we all owe it a lot of money at this point, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've tried to uh, optimize and get like the audiobooks on sale and buy uh, subscriptions so that, you know, I'm paying less per month than I would otherwise, but I still end up buying so many books. Well played. Yep. That's probably a common refrain for a lot of fantasy fans or book fans in general. It's absolutely. But, you know, it's it's important. We keep the industry alive. Absolutely. Um well, so I think I first heard of you in relation to your Geek Culture Porno Kitsch blog. So I'm kind of wondering what what led you to co-found Porno Kitsch in the first place? That's a really good question. So Porno Kitsch um, has a few different origin stories. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, it's actually at the point where I'm not even sure which one is the truth. So I might as well give a couple. <laughs> uh, mostly... Uh, and I think this is, you know, more or less truth. At least it has the ring of truth to it. Um, and my my wife and I were having a lot of conversations around science fiction and fantasy that we didn't see anywhere else. And that sounds incredibly 
arrogant. And it wasn't that we were having particularly like highbrow or intellectual conversations. Um, if anything, I mean, as you know, science fiction fantasy has a really good academic tradition. So actually, if you want to have incredibly, um, I suppose, deep and critical conversations about science fiction, that there are places for that. Um, nor did we really, you know, there were already places where people were having, yeah, I like this book a lot. Here are a couple of gifts about it, that sort of thing, um, which is also great and really important. And right, the internet right. is for people sharing their enthusiasm. But we wanted something a bit in between. So something that was going to look at the potentially not particularly deep or intellectually acclaimed books that we loved, but examine them with a bit more rigor. Um, or, uh, you know, conversely, sites, uh, you know, create a site or have a conversation around very deep and meaningful and sort of literary science fiction works, but also appreciating them as, as a piece of entertainment. So I'm not sure middle brow is exactly the way of looking at it, but we just, we wanted some place <laughs> where we could have and share the conversations that we were already having. I think the name is a, is a, I mean, just completely made up. I went through a very odd period of just buying a lot of domain names on sale and had maybe 30 or 40 different domain names that were all just incredibly weird little words. As you and, do, as you do. As one does. You know, some people buy sneakers. I had URLs. Um, and for some reason, we just tagged, we just, you know, jumped on with porno catch as, as the right one for this exercise. And years later, and retconned a very, very, very intelligent explanation for why porno kitsch is exactly the right word for what we were trying to do. Um, but that definitely was not true. But, you know, we, we <laughs> liked it anyway. I will admit when I uh, first found the R Fantasy community and I saw you commenting every now and then, uh, at first I thought maybe you thought it was the wrong kind of fantasy. <laughs> we have, it, in hindsight, it is just the worst name. I mean, we had publishers that wouldn't put our blurbs on things. We had, um, you know, people just bending over backwards to not say the name out loud. Um, you know, it, it's blocked on a lot of people's browsers. You know, you know, to create a, <laughs> a a website, sort of trying to create a community website that people can't access from work or school or anything. I mean, it, an absolute disaster. On the other hand, it's really memorable. So hey, it is. We'll, we'll it really it. is. Yeah, so I think Pornokitch is no longer active, but it's still available for people who want to find it. But you were active for, I think, a little over a decade, right around there. That's uh, right. So any highlights from that experience? Oh, it was so much fun. I mean, it, you know, we went through, I think, the same sort of enthusiastic growth curve that I, I see on the, on the in now. Um, you know, for me, the part that I miss most is a lot around the commissioning um you know by by the end by 2018 you know porno catch wasn't just Anne and me but it was people like stark holburn and jamie colling and we had you know um i got aaron Lindsay was writing for it becky chambers was writing for it you know we had a, a list of a dozen people that would were doing regular columns and our brief for them was just write about whatever you feel passionate to write about. So we had things like Becky Chambers writing about Funko Pops and Stark Holberg writing about Soviet Westerns. And it was really, really fun. And it was really nice to feel ahead of the curve in 
reading the articles that I wanted to read before they were even published. And even now, I'll run into something, I'll see a movie, or I'll see a toy, or I'll have a, a question about something like fan fiction or romances or, or whatever. And I'm like, oh man, I wish I had, you know, blah and blah on tap to write an article about that now. Um, and I really miss, um, God, that actually just, that's all sounding a bit more like a power trip than a sense of community. But mostly it's, <laughs> it's, um, that sense of that sense of community of having sort of a dozen people behind the scenes all just writing the stuff that they were really in love with. And, and that made me very happy. Um, but it's also, you know, blogging is great. It's just, it's a great chance for all of us to put our thoughts out in the world and see what happens. Um, and having authors respond and publishers respond, or better yet, just absolute complete strangers stumble on your work and leave a comment saying, oh, that's really interesting. Have you thought about it this way? And you're like, oh my god, we've actually used the internet for what it's supposed to be for. Who knew? Yeah, that's incredible. I know uh, most random commenters we have stumbling onto our bloggers saying, actually, I think you're wrong for this reason. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, still plenty of that. Uh, we got a lot of random comments because, again, the name Porno Kitch means that our Google searches were very strange. So it's, <laughs> uh, you know, choose any term in fantasy and then add the word porn to it, and we would have people landing on our sites. You know, porn telepathic dragons, porn talking space cats. Wow, this is, I'm sure that's out there, guys, <laughs> but you're going to be really disappointed. Oh. But yeah, I mean, again, with that memorable name and I guess discoverability, <laughs> look on the bright side. Very long tail, I think, is the uh, what we were looking for. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, so I know uh, you were more of a geek popular culture blog than strictly a review or critique blog, but I'm sure you have lots of strongly held opinions about how to critique something. So I guess, in your opinion, what makes for an effective review of something? That's a really good question. Um, it's very interesting having a 10-year record of my own reviews. I mean, longer if I'm still writing occasionally for places like Tor and, and a few others. But it's, it's changed so much. Um, I mean, the av advice I give, and it's very much a, a take-it-or-leave-it thing because you know, just, just because it worked for me, make it about the book and not the author. It's... Yep very very easy to write a review and say the author was lazy or the author was thinking the wrong thing or the author's ambition was to do x like honestly we don't know um it it's a it's a huge leap of faith to make a statement like that and often it comes across as more offensive than it does um to give them credit um i also you know I, people go back and forth on this but i, I think especially when you are starting out, absolutely have a template for your reviews. I mean, try it a thousand different ways. You know, try to write a review as a 50-line rhyming poem or an acrostic, or um, you know, try writing three positives and three negatives, or try doing it as a three-point essay or whatever. I mean, absolutely experiment. I mean, whatever works for you to get the words out of your head and onto paper, that is the best way of writing a review. And then over time, you know, it could be the the second review or the tenth or the hundredth. You'll you'll sort of find your pace and your voice, and the reviews will follow all the more naturally from there. 
but it's it's really hard just like all the advice about writing a novel it just has to work for you the reviewer um, and and finding your own voice in that way yeah that's that's been my experience as well i know i actually started out kind of doing what you said where i had a template i had you know uh, setting, characters, prose, uh, plot, all of that. And then I just like write my thoughts on each of those and break it out into sections. And then over time, I felt that that was kind of limiting me and I was blending in between all the different sections. So I just kind of did away with that and do my own thing, just kind of dump my thoughts out. And, th- and that's a great moment, isn't it? Like the day you have the book and you're like, actually, the setting is really important on this. So I'm going to focus on that. And Wait, I can skip the sort of like character paragraph because I think that's driven by the setting or or whatever. Like that that sense of power when you break the template because you know what you want to say so I suppose confidently, that is that is a wonderful moment. And that's really when you've sort of grabbed your voice for the first time. And for me it was just if I'm if I love this book and I want to chuck it at anyone who walks across me, like what am I going to be telling them to get them to open it and actually read it? Like that kind of thing as well is what I focus on. Which do you find easier? The the books that you love and want to recommend or the books where perhaps you didn't enjoy it so much and have a few more critical things to say? This might be a minority opinion, but the critical ones I find easier because the ones that I absolutely love, I have this pressure to do it justice. And I feel like I can never quite live up to my aims for that. I totally agree. Um, I look back at some of the... I mean, I just saw that you reviewed the new K.J. Parker, um, and I, I thought you did an absolutely excellent job. And, <laughs> well, thank you. you know, the first time I reviewed a K.J. Parker, it was literally like three paragraphs being like, this is the greatest book ever. No, seriously, it's great. It's too excellent for me to write about. You should read it. And like that. That is not a review. That is... Yeah. I mean, I hope, you know... Maybe that sold a book or got someone interested, so that, you know it wasn't without value. But I'm not sure it counts as a a reviewing effort in that sense. Yeah, I mean my my experience because that was the first KJ Parker I'd ever read. It was just why the hell have I not been reading more of his stuff? <laughs> um, no, it's great. This is if Prosper Steeman for everyone listening. It's absolutely it's really fun. I, I think novella is a great length for. Parker as well. You got, you know, it's got that great balance of like really interesting world building in a, you know, absolutely fascinating magic system and all of that. But it's sort of one long mystery. I'm not even sure how to describe the the format of the book, but it's it's really good fun. It it really is. I was asking questions the whole time and I was happy with the answers I got. (laughs) Nicely put. (laughs) Uh, Well, so from blogging, I mean, I think you more or less started there in the industry, but you actually had your own not-for-profit publishing house that you ran, Jurassic London. But before we jump into that a little bit, based on the name Jurassic London and your Twitter profile picture, is it <laughs> safe to say you're a bit of a dinosaur enthusiast? I am a dinosaur enthusiast, like fantasy. I think it's one of those things I just never outgrew or walked away from. Um, but they're, they're, you know, they're pretty wonderful. Um, the Jurassic London thing was I was freelance for a while and needed to desperately, like, you know, very quickly set up a company to 
take money from new freelance clients and that sort of thing. And I don't even know how I stumbled on the name Jurassic London. Probably I looked around and I'm like, damn, there's a lot of dinosaurs in this room. Sort of. Did you have a domain name already purchased for it? Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was my attempt at being vaguely professional. And then um, of all the things that lasted out of that brief and inefficient freelance period of my life, the professional end did not, but the the publishing side did, which was, oh well. I mean, at least it's a good name. I've been saddled with worse names, for example, Porno Kitch. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So Anne and I had really, and still do, have very strong feelings about you know what science fiction publishing and fandom and you know what it needed, um, and. We were very much in a, you know, I'm I'm sure you have experienced it and other members of the Inn have experienced it as well. Um, you know, this is a, a very old fandom and it's a very old publishing industry. And occasionally you run into something where you think something ought to exist and the powers that be just sort of throw barriers in your way. Being like, oh God, you... You know, you can't have a new award because we tried to set up a new award in 1975 and it wasn't right. You can't have, you know, you can't focus on diversity because someone once tried to do that in like 1893 and it didn't work then. And, you know, you can have an event, but you need to talk to Bob and Bob Jr. and Bob the Third, who are all the official events people. You know, it's it's absolutely exhausting. And we were always big fans of, well, why don't we just if we think something needs to be out there, we might as well just try and do it ourselves. And the worst thing we could do is, you know, fail and move on. So we're, we're lucky like that. So as part of the sort of porno kitsch ethos, we, through a lot of events, which were a lot of fun, brought together sort of authors and artists and booksellers from all sorts of different backgrounds and sort of had them mingle in what were very good events. We set up an and I mean, it, it did help that also we had um, we set up the Kitchies, um, an award which launched with a sponsor, which was a, a rum company, um, the Kraken Rum. So that made our events very popular, as you might imagine. Oh, fantastic! Um, and I'm pleased to say that of sort of of all the things that we ever worked on, the Kitchies is the bit that's still going. Um, I don't have anything to do with it anymore, which is, I think, another another challenge you sort of face in fandom is when to step away and, and leave it to someone else. But, um, but you know, events and an award and um, trying to help out with everything that we could. And then we made, of course, the, the biggest, most classically ambitious mistake of all, which is to think, well, publishing doesn't look that hard. Why don't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why don't we publish the books that we think we need in the world? And our thought was, um, oh, we we thought we were so very clever. Um, there was an there was an event at um, Tate Britain on the artwork of John Martin, and John Martin's artwork is just this incredibly. I mean, these these are these over the top pulp paintings about the end of the world. I mean, they're they're absolutely glorious and they're well worth looking at. But they, I mean, they look like they should be the cover of like 1970s fantasy novels. And we thought, um, it's just ridiculous. Like it's, you know, it's um 
the the apocalypse is such a trend in fiction, and everyone's writing dystopian stuff right now. And they're you know Tate Britain are doing basically an apocalyptic exhibition. Some publisher should totally put together a book to go with the exhibition. And this, of course, is about twelve to thirteen weeks before the exhibition starts. And we're like, oh, well, no. yeah. <laughs> so we're all like. This is fine. That is plenty of time. We're not going to give our great idea to a publisher. We're going to do it ourselves. So we used the you know ridiculous name we had, Jurassic London, and we threw together a publishing company, and we taught ourselves how to become publishers. Um, sort of just bullied and bribed and browbeat almost two dozen authors into contributing short stories, and somehow did it. Um, Sort of mostly. I'm, I'm not going to say it was, you know, 100% a success. For example, um, there wasn't, I don't think we actually had books at the launch event, which was kind of a problem. Um, so things like that. <laughs> we also, um, there are, you know, we, we did a few very clever things, I think, which was sort of, we were, you know, 100 really beautiful limited edition hardcover books. And then, you know, a uh, really cheap ebooks to go with it to make sure that everyone could read the book but also if you're a book collector you could have this sort of super cool limited edition um the first book we did fell into the thinking of being like well you know um people are like normally books are on 80 gsm paper and really nice books are on like 100 gsm paper so we're going to make the nicest book ever and print it on 200 gsm paper which <laughs> sort of makes sense except for the fact that the book weighs like a metric ton and i mean just almost unliftably heavy because it's on this like archival photographic paper and it, um i mean I guess uh, about 10 years on, like looking at the copies of that first book, like they're steadily falling apart because the paper is so heavy, it's like falling out of the spine. Anyway, um, it, lots of things that you you learn about publishing once you start publishing. Um, I'm not sure where that story was going to end, except for the fact that we were very ambitious and very foolish, um, but somehow made a small publisher out of it that I think we printed about 40 odd books by the time we um we called it a day which was I think pretty spectacular actually. Yeah, that that's uh, pretty incredible. I actually didn't realize it was that many. They were we tinkered a lot. So the the sort of showpiece line were the big anthologies. Um and we did I think about 10 of those. But then we also did chapbooks and little christmas books and a few digital only things and some reprints um just whenever we stumbled on an idea being like actually it would be really cool to reprint this strange victorian book in a pocket-sized quasi penguin looking book um let's <laughs> let's try and do that um and sometimes you know we had a couple lines of books that were purely because we changed printers and i wanted to test their capability and what better way of testing it than to send them a book so we learned a lot. Um, the The entire thing was for charity, thank God, because I think if we had actually thrown ourselves into it, trying to become, trying to make a living out of it, it would have driven us mad. Um, but the fact that it was all sort of, let's see if we can make our money back, and better yet, see if we can make some money for good causes, I think took a lot of the pressure off and allowed us to be much more experimental. And it was really good fun. That sounds fascinating and kind of like a lot of fun as well. 
Well, so as someone who's a fan critic and, I guess, creator of speculative fiction, I imagine you have a somewhat unique perspective on the industry. So what sorts of common misconceptions do you think people might have about publishing? That is really tough. I'm curious, does anyone else answer that? <laughs> uh, not to my knowledge, no. <laughs> um, I think there are, I'm not sure if they're common misconceptions or even just my own bugbears. Um, the battles between traditional and independent or self-published sides of the industry, I think, are ridiculous. I think it helps independent publishers to think that there's a an enemy that they are jousting against. Um, and I think it helps traditional publishers to think that, um, you know, there's a, a sort of seedy underbelly um, out there that they that they are competing against. But in actuality, and as readers, we we both know that there's they're fine. They're both different routes to market. They both they both wind up with readers. They have pros and cons. It's whatever is best for the writer. Um, and you know, I've I've done both. I've published books with big publishers and self-published and with small publishers. And every single way has really good things and really bad things about it. And you know, one of these common misconceptions that they're either mutually exclusive or that they are naturally antagonistic. I mean, that's that absolutely drives me nuts. And I don't like the sort of associated fallout from it. Um, I am married to a big five editor who is absolutely brilliant at her job and incredibly passionate. And I spend a lot of time with people that work at the big five. And they don't all have New York townhouses and they're not rolling in money. And they are often paid far less than their writers and working 10 times the hours that you think. They don't have nights and weekends. They love their books and they they go to bat for them. And I don't like the idea that there's this sense of big publishing as some sort of vicious commoditized industry. And similarly, you know, self-published authors are incredibly hardworking. They're incredibly vibrant. They're incredibly intelligent. And they're not self-publishing because they don't have other choices. They're self-publishing because it's it's best for them and they're being really clever. And many of them do incredibly well out of it. So portraying them all as failures or vultures is no good either. Um, you know, the publishing industry as a whole is in a pretty grim situation. Um, it is the least innovative of all the creative industries. It's having real difficulties with diversity. It's getting absolutely hammered by Amazon. It's in a, in a really, really, really tough place. And the fact that everyone within the industry, and I'm including readers and self-published authors and reviewers and bloggers, you know, the more time we spend sniping at one another rather than just thinking about how do we get more people to pick up books? That that's all wasted time. Um, so that is my sort of gloomy call to arms. But it, it just absolutely exhausts me to see, you know, we see it on the on the littlest level of of just fantasy fans saying, well, you know, that book was that book was trash, or no one should read that. They should read this instead. And like, no, guys, like if we love books and we want more of them, we need to be selling. <laughs> And not just to one another, but we all need to be putting books in the in the hands of our friends and and little cousins and kids and neighbors and coworkers. Like it's publishing needs as much help as it can get right now. 
Absolutely. And uh, definitely some of those people could use to realize that uh, their opinions on a book are not objective truth as well. Amen. That is a, <laughs> a huge pet peeve. <laughs> and, you know, especially we, we all got into this because we enjoyed the books we were reading. And to make other people feel like they, they aren't allowed to enjoy something is, is pretty low. Like it's okay if a book isn't perfect and you're, it's, you know, it's okay. And in fact, it's really great to discuss books critically, but to make people feel bad for liking it is, is a step too far. Probably goes back to, you know, what makes an effective review? If you are making people feel shitty for liking a book, that's a bad review. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that's definitely a solid reason that a review would be <laughs> not so great. So I, I listened to an interview you did on the Hype Collective podcast last year, uh, and you said that finding the right combination of words to change the world around you is practically magic. Uh, in case we have any writers listening to this podcast, uh, how exactly magical do you think the phrase, buy my book, is? <laughs> um, I think it could be incredibly powerful, you know, an incredibly potent piece of sorcery if used at the right time in the right place. Um, I think as a a way of starting the conversation, it can lack a little um, potency. <laughs> it's also not a phrase. It's a very that gets diplomatic better. way yeah. of putting it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's also not a not a phrase that gets better for um, repetition, is it? Uh, there's also I, you know, the UK and the US. Um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to even pretend to speak for the rest of the world, but for the UK and the U and the US, you know, there are massive cultural differences in what is seen as acceptable self-promotion. I mean, not to make fun of the British, but, you know, over here, even like saying your name out loud is often seen as unacceptable self-promotion and you have to go, you know, hide away on your country's estate for three years until society lets you back in. Whereas really? in the US, um, there is much more of a sort of in your face, if you have a sales opportunity, you should be taking it, else everyone will be disappointed in you mentality. And I, I think um, there probably needs to be some sort of happy medium between them. But that is, that's where marketing books gets really hard. Yeah. And uh, as someone who's worked in marketing, do you have any advice on that? How, how should people be marketing their books? There's not going to be any universal answer, I'm afraid. Um, I think, and this probably goes with any marketing strategy, but you, you just have to know who your audience is in advance. And, right. You know, take a fantasy book. Um, are you trying to sell it to existing fantasy readers? Are you trying to sell it to fantasy readers who read a certain author or a certain type of book? Are you trying to sell it to people who don't normally read fantasy, but actually might really you know, find something to connect with in your book? Are you trying to sell it to people who really like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and your fantasy book you think has some has some real relevance to them? You know, are you selling it to romance readers? This and that. I mean, none of those are mutually exclusive. Like, your book can be right for all of those people. But what you would say to a Brandon Sanderson fan to sell your book to them is going to be very different to what you would say to your great aunt, Kylie, who hasn't ever read anything that wasn't published by Harlequin. Now, she might like your book too, but you can't approach her with, you got, you know, Great Aunt Kylie, it's a thousand pages long and it builds really big on the end and the magic system is awesome. 
Like that's, you know, you need a different pitch for her. Um, and I think people often try to do too much um, or they try and come up with something that is so high concept that it can hit every audience at the same time. And that that very rarely works. They just wind up saying, buy my book all over again. And that that's not going to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well... Moving on a little bit, I know you've edited or been involved with quite a few anthologies over the years. Uh, I believe your most recent was Best of British Fantasy 2018. I could be wrong on that. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, yeah, uh, last year was um, the first volume in the Best of British Fantasy series, and um, with my um, partner in crime, uh, Mavesh Murad, we did the Outcast Hours um, with Solaris Publishing. Um, two a year actually feels about right. But yes, um, I am an occasional anthology editor. Okay. Well, as someone who is just starting to be more familiar with uh, your standard developmental or structural, your line, your copy editing, I have to admit, I still have no idea what being an anthology editor means. Uh, so could you get an overview of what it actually means to be an anthology editor? With pleasure. It is by far the best sort of editing. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Um, so... Um, an anthology editor normally, and and you know this isn't this is going to be true across the experience, but um, you have a book concept that needs a lot of short stories in it, and what an anthologist does is package all those short stories together. So, um, Mavesh and I, for example, you know, approached twenty different authors. We got them all on board for the Outcast Hours. We put together that big idea, and then we sell that to a publisher. Um, with Best of British Fantasy, it's a it's a reprint anthology. So I sell the idea to a publisher, in this case, Newcon Press, um, and then I I go out and find um, you know the twenty or twenty five quote unquote best stories of the year um, to bring together in it. Um, but it's really fun because what we're trying to do is as anthology editors is, is come up with an idea that lots of people can play in. And so there's a common theme, but at least you are seeing that theme from as many different sort of eyes and angles as possible. And okay, absolutely. You know, if it's original fiction, we then act as structural editors and, um, you know, feedback on the stories and do our best to make authors miserable in that way. Um, if it's <laughs> reprint, being a reprint editor is a really good gig because, you know, other editors have already done all the hard work for you and you just um, cherry pick your favorites. Um, and, you know, there's a bit more as well in, is the theme coming to life the way you want it to? Are there any gaps? Uh, what's the flow of the anthology? Um, it's one of the great pleasures of the position is spending like six hours staring at all the stories and, you know, trying to get them in the right order, um, get to have fun writing an introduction. Um, but it's, it's creating that package of short stories. That is what an anthologist gets to do. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's well put. You've got some brilliant ones out there. I mean, the, the Vandermeers with things like the weird, um, love to do, gigantic exhaustive books that really explore really huge themes and then folks like jonathan strahan are doing amazing things by sort of almost revisiting classic 
sword and sorcery themes, but with with all sorts of new perspectives. It's a really, really fun angle um, and, and a really great way of sort of making an impact as an editor, but without the, I suppose, depth of time commitment that it takes to be a, an editor of something like a novel. I mean, an editor spends as much time with a novel as the author does. Um, and that that has never been my particular gig. <laughs> I'm not I'm not patient enough. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess with anthologies, you just get exposure to so much more material than, or at least a more breadth than you would. Absolutely. Otherwise, yeah. Um, it's it's sad because they're not, you know, speaking frankly, anthologies are not a huge part of the market. Um, if it has Neil Gaiman's name on it or George R. R. Martin's name on it, it's you know, it will go to the front of the of the bookcase, and you know, booksellers will will take them and push them. And that's, you know, we're lucky in that actually both of those guys are are very good anthologists. Um, but there are hundreds of anthologies that are put out every year, and they explore all sorts of really niche perspectives in science fiction and fantasy and and other genres. And they're really good at giving new voices platforms to experiment and they're also very good at giving old voices chances to do something new or something that they've always wanted to do but as a, as a reader an anthology is you know it's it's a grab bag um there's no anthology out there that any reader will love every story in because it's 20 completely different authors and completely different voices so that that's a hard sell to a reader to think here you go here's a book that has 20 different things in it you might really like some of them and you might hate some of the others. <laughs> and that's um that's tough. And I, I understand why why they're a hard sell, but they're so much fun and they're they're such a good way for readers to discover new authors and have a lot of fun doing so. Yeah, see that that's the appeal for me of anthologies is I get to have a beautiful book from my bookshelf and I also get to kind of low risk try out a bunch of different authors without buying all of their individual novels. That is exactly it. And it's really, it's very interesting to see what happens in um, like urban fantasy and romance and paranormal romance have really sort of highly evolved anthology markets. They're incredibly good at using anthologies to cross-sell lots of existing worlds. And you, you see that a lot in, or we're starting to see that more in fantasy as well, which I think is is a really good thing for people that are, you know, using anthologies to shop for new series. Um but it's also just as important to take a topic like, um, you know, freedom or dragons or, you know, um, anything you like, and see how it's explored from all sorts of different, you know, lowercase d and capital D diverse perspectives. And anthologies give people the the chance to do that to really see how a theme can be explored in all sorts of different ways. Well, so I guess that's a great segue into Best of British Fantasy, where your theme, I guess, is more or less the best. Uh, <laughs> so I'm curious, what makes a story the best for you? So, um, that is a really good question. So absolutely, like, the best and best of British Fantasy is the best for me. Um, I, I love being able to edit a series with such an incredibly glamorous title. Um, especially, <laughs> you know, there's absolutely nothing backing that that bestness except for the fact that i really like this story um therefore it is the best uh which is 
that as a power trip. Um, I really, really like, you know, my my mood will change as and my taste will change, and I think that's important. But you know, I, a short story has to grab me absolutely immediately. Um, it has to stand alone, um, especially with something like the best of British fantasy. It is not one of those anthologies where it's meant to introduce people to lots of different worlds. It's supposed to be a, a coherent, self-contained whole. So everything that happens in a short story that I read needs to be within that short story. If it has any sort of external reference, that's not going to work for me. Um, and then and I'm, I'm going to steal a quote from China Mieville, but uh, you know, a great story has to beginning and middle and end. Um, and I think only China could use middle as a as a verb in that way. But <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of short stories are incredible beginnings, um, and I think there's actually a, a substantial minority of short stories that have really good endings. the The hard part is having a short story that has both of those and then connects them with a really good middle. And that's not very helpful, but that's what I'm out there looking for. Right, right. Um, no, I mean that makes sense. And uh, so in your intro for the 2018 edition of the anthology series, you took a somewhat different approach. Uh, you took a statistical look at fantasy readers living in the UK. And I'm assuming you'll be taking a similar approach for this year's anthology? I definitely will. Um, so far, I've been running the numbers and um, so far they're largely the chain. They're largely the same. I think... Um, one of the interesting things about the British context is that nothing really changed in the UK until uh, <laughs> December last year. So all of 2018 and 2019, and in fact a lot of 2017 for that matter, um, just sort of a big squidgy purgatorial mess. And um, you know, 2019 ended in an election. Um, and whether or not, um, anyone, you know, however anyone voted or, or personally believes it, it changed things. Um, so, so far all of my data has been from early December. So before everything changed, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of poking around in the January figures and including those to see actually if the mindset of the fantasy reader is different now, um, whether it's, you know, more optimistic about the future or more pessimistic or um, if there's been anything sort of substantive in that way. But it's um, it's a lot of fun. It is definitely, um, I don't know if it's a unique way about approaching this sort of anthology, but I'm really having a lot of fun trying to figure out, okay, if someone's reading this book in like 50 years and they need to understand the people that were reading it at the time, um, what kind of stats can we use to bring them to life? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, if nothing else, uh, the longer this anthology series goes on, the more value I think those intros will have if they give kind of an insight into the readership each year. That's right. For the for the ten year one, it can just be a bunch of data tables. Be like, here's change over time. <laughs> also, dragons. just an academic report. Yes, that's that's wonderful. It's, no one's even reading this for the dragons anymore. Anyway, go back to your bunkers. <laughs> uh, well, so there's a Best of British Fantasy website you have in addition to the anthologies, uh, and it highlights just people's favorite stories from British authors. So I have to wonder, uh, do you have any personal favorite British authors or British stories? 
I, I mean, I'm only human. I have a million favorites. So yes, um, <laughs> or just any that you're you're currently fond of and you'd like to uh, talk about. Um, well, I've mentioned uh, rather ironically um, or appropriately, I've mentioned we've talked about KJ Parker and I've sort of name dropped China Mayville as well, who I think those two um, I think will always you know I owe them a lot for. I think when I was in the fantasy wilderness, um, those were the two writers I sort of kept looking to, being like, "Oh, this is this is what greatness looks like to me." Um, and they're very different, um, but they they gave me a nice sort of like, whenever I was confused or I was reading a lot or I was burned out on fantasy, I could always, you know, look to a China medieval book and think, "Oh, this is this is what good is." I can always can always focus on that, um, and I think those two will always hold a, a very special place in my heart. Um, in that way, um, I have been rereading a lot of um, Steph Swainston. Um, she did the the Castle series, um, which began with the Year of Our War. Um, it's an absolutely phenomenal series that I, I think. Um, it's one of those things, it's kind of a shame that it was published when it was published, and I, I want it to come out now, where I think um, the fantasy market is a little edgier, is looking for characters with um, much more depth to them. Um, but they're they're absolutely absolutely brilliant, incredibly weird, um, told in a, in a very, very, I, I want to call it sort of an experimental prose, but it, it's really not. It's just sort of a, a really engaging tone of voice. Um, and then, um, going back a bit, one of the highlights of the past few years ha- has been reading and, and rereading all of the, the classic Mary Stewart books, um, her Merlin trilogy, as well as her romantic suspense novels. But the, the Crystal Cave, especially her first Merlin book, I think is incredibly important, um, not just to fantasy readers, but as a work of trying to understand the British. Um, Because the Crystal Cave tries to capture a period of time where, you know, Britain wasn't Britain. It was just a mass of warring tribes and not even city-states, but just tiny little aggravated and aggravating communities from all sorts of different ethnic and historical backgrounds. And the role of Merlin and then eventually the role of Arthur in creating a a sort of united British identity. And that is incredibly topical now, but also, you know, all the more interesting for having been written 50 years ago. And it's a very good fantasy. Yeah, you're you're doing a great job of selling me on all of these books. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I highly recommend them. Um, No, it's... um, I, you know, I feel guilty for recommending slightly older books because there is so much amazing work that's coming out now. But um, I feel that that actually, I mean, just even having a brief skim of the fantasy in, I think you're you're doing a really good job of keeping in touch with all of the incredible contemporary work. And I just want to make sure that um, some of the, especially some of the more diverse older books, aren't lost in the in the shuffle as well. Right. And I mean, I know a personal goal for me uh, is actually in the upcoming year or two, I want to go back and read some of those books that might have been overlooked because they released in the wrong decade or something similar. I think it's it's really interesting because we are, 
you know, sites like the Inn, even you know the, the direction that the moderators um, and the community of of Reddit fantasy are like. There's a, a really great push, I think, across fantasy fantasy readership to embrace new voices and own voices, and to really make sure that um, you know fantasy is hitting the breadth and the depth that it that it always could. And I think that's absolutely phenomenal. There is also a risk that we look back at the past and we're like, well, you know, it was one generation only had Tolkien and then the next generation only had Eddings and Jordan. And then the generation after that had, you know, Abercrombie and Lynch. Um, yep. And those are all great. Like I'm not knocking any of those guys except for Robert Jordan. I will never like those books, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Steph Swainston was publishing the same time as, as the first Joe Abercrombie's came out and I don't want that to be lost. And, you know, Mary Stewart was out there as, as an absolute, like iconic chart topping bestseller. And it's, it's not fair to forget her. Um, and in fact, it's, it's deeply wrong and it does fantasy both then and now a disservice to, lose um the diversity of of voices that we had in the past especially because they also had to work really really hard to get there and they they deserve the attention yep i think it's an interesting uh trying to balance promoting voices who are active now uh and helping them have like a fulfilling career and put more amazing books out in the world as well as not forgetting some of those same amazing books that just came out in the past i i completely agree and there is you know, there is probably a, a moral obligation to spend more time talking about the people writing now. And I completely, you know, I'm on board with that. Like, we want to make sure that the people writing now aren't forgotten in the future and have every advantage they can now. Um, but um, we do need to spare a thought every now and then for the people that came before. Yeah, well, on the note of looking back, uh, any future projects in store for you? Anything you're looking forward to on the horizon? Um, sorry, do I answer that personally or other people's stuff? <laughs> ah, whichever way you want to take okay. it. Um, so, um, obviously, it doesn't really need a shout out in any way, and I think it'll do very well on its own. But I am really excited about the new Susanna Clark novel that's been announced. Um, uh, all I know is that the title is Piranesi, um, and I am a big fan of the sort of Piranesi prison sketches, and I think there's going to be some amazing... I am just absolutely fascinated to see what she's going to do. And I'm actually... It's at the point of being a bit like a blockbuster movie in my head. So I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at the cover. I'm not going to read any spoilers. I'm not going to, <laughs> like, I'm going to avoid reviews and just wait till opening, you know, release day, opening night, whatever. Pick up a copy and then go lock myself in a room and read it for as long as it takes. Um, but just knowing that it's Susanna Clark and Piranesi makes me really, really, really excited. Um, I am, um, and I don't want to say this is like the opposite side of the of the pendulum but um in the realm of like pure explodey joyous entertainment i am a big fan of the works of drew williams um he has a just incredible space opera series that is absolutely delightful and it's a bit like so it starts with the stars now unclaimed um the third book the firmament of flame um is out uh i think comes out in february or is out in february um 
it's just really good fun. It's spaceships and explosions, and it's kind of like Star Wars, but better, which is probably a really dangerous <laughs> thing to say. But uh, uh, Well, it sells me on it, because I've never personally been a huge Star Wars fan. Oh my god, we're both getting in so much trouble for this, aren't we? But it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the sort of like fast-paced, explodey, exciting space fantasy space opera that uh, you know, I loved as a kid and I've loved my entire life and I'm delighted that is still happening now. So highly recommending Drew Williams. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I have both of those on my radar now and I will probably be checking both of them out in the near future. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, similarly, any books you've just been reading lately that you can recommend? Fantasy wise, not so much. Um, which sounds really horrible. Um, I've been, um, Actually, no. Oh my God, that's a horrible lie. Um, well, nor- so normally, um, I just finished all the selections for Best of British Fantasy and reading, in this case, like 300 odd fantasy short stories. <laughs> and I, I try and space it out in the year and read them when they come in, but eventually it does sort of wind up being like one month of just being like lambasted with great um, fantasy. But, you know, it is, it is slightly overkill. So I then. Um, try not to read a lot of fantasy afterwards. Um, so I am currently alternating in between Georgette Hayer Mysteries and um, the Alona Andrews um, Kate Daniels series, which, okay. is, which is actually fantasy. Um, and I don't mean to knock it, but it's as a sort of um, best-selling and incredibly enjoyable um, urban fantasy series. It is, I think, very different from a lot of the, the stories I was reading for Best of British, but I love it. I think Alona Andrews she or or they or um however they go about it um is just never bad and always a great deal of fun to read um and i'm enjoying the kate daniels series a lot plus it's 10 books so that'll keep me occupied for a while yeah i i definitely have that on my radar i think is it set in atlanta that's right yeah yeah so perfect it'd be nice to uh read something set in basically my neck of the woods i mean it absolutely destroys atlanta in every book so don't get too fond of it (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's really interesting and as it the kate daniels series i have a hard time looking at it not from an industry eye because you've got a 10 book series that clearly has like a proper like epic fantasy arc to it you know you have a chosen one you've got a big bad and over the 10 books it builds to a final battle like i'm I'm only halfway through but it's it's pretty clear that's what's happening but at the same time each individual book is written a bit like a thriller you have a self-contained uh problem and solution and way of going about it um but it's it it reads more like a sort of a, a suspense novel or a thriller than anything else And then at the same time, the series has this incredible ecosystem on it where, you know, Ilona Andrews will occasionally introduce sub-characters or side-characters or sort of really interesting NPCs, basically. And (laughs) then they will all go off and have their own adventures. There will be a novel about them or a novella or short stories and things. And that's a trick that happens a lot in romance. So you've got this incredible series that is... You know, structured like an epic fantasy, has the ecosystem of a romance, and then each novel is sort of composed like a like a thriller. And I'm like, this is really smart. Like it helps that it's it's good and fun, but also I just really appreciate the like strategic brilliance 
of this series. Um, it is very, very well done. Yeah, that that's interesting too because I know my very, very limited experience, I'll have to qualify that, with urban fantasy has been that each entry in the series tends to be more of a mystery structure than anything else. So the thriller structure uh, sounds kind of up my alley. It's, I mean, I, I'd like to pretend it's a bit of a mystery, but they're not. I mean, they're in no way, they're in no way mysteries. There's something sort of really sinister out there in Atlanta doing terrible things to people, and Kate Daniels wanders through the city punching it in the face. Like it's it's <laughs> they're that's, not that's a blurb right there. <laughs> uh, they're very good fun. Yeah. Well, uh, one way I kind of like to close out most of my interviews is uh, just asking you: Is there anything you're ridiculously excited about right now? Could be absolutely anything. Well, this won't air for a little while, as we've spoken about. But um, as we record this, I am still coming down from a crashing eight-day-long hangover from the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, (laughs) (laughs) which is, um, you know, there's there's that sort of almost pathetic cliche of a sports fan being like, it was the best day of my life watching a lot of people that I don't know personally do a thing that has no direct involvement on me. But but it's it's definitely one of the best days of my life. Um, staying, especially from London, staying up till four in the morning and cooking barbecue for a week in advance and, um, you know, screaming wordlessly at the television as basically the sun rises um, <laughs> is a memory I'm going to carry with me for a long, long time. It's always nice to uh, speak with a fan of proper football from your side of the pond. <laughs> there, there aren't enough of us, but I'm doing my best. Actually, I'm probably scaring everyone <laughs> off, to be honest. I'm crazy, but I'll, I'll still try. Yeah. Well, I think that about covers everything I have for you today. Uh, Jared Sharin, thanks for stopping by the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You can find Jared Sharin on Twitter as at Stray Carnivore. And though it formally closed in 2018, his pop culture blog, www.pornokitch.com, still has some fascinating content. The Best of British Fantasy 2019 anthology is available for pre-order now. The Fantasy End will be hosting the cover reveal later today. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyend.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyend. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get access to exclusive content, and we get to make the podcast just a little bit better. We'd also love for you to join us on our Discord server. An invite link is in the show notes and on our blog. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.